Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Paul read 12 verses, but we're actually going to go through the whole chapter. Um, I've entitled the morning's message, Revival and Persecution. We do not have too many cross-references, and for chapter 8 to make sense, I need to do a little review uh, going back to chapter 7, where we're introduced to Stephen um, after... 3,000 people were saved. Uh, They appointed Stephen as one who would help out um, in feeding people, taking care of needs. But the Lord raised him up um, also to be an evangelist. So I'm going to quickly go through chapter 7. Matter of fact, the first 50 verses what we have is Stephen preaches to the council. And remember, they were extremely upset with him. And um, uh, they, um, they want to kill him. And as, as he gets in it, ministering to him, the first 50 verses of Acts chapter 70, he's simply recounting to them their own history, which they knew very well. And uh, he wanted to persuade them that he's not bringing a new doctrine. Well, he is, but he's actually tried to persuade them that Jesus is fulfilling everything they already believe. So if I would sum up the first 50 verses of Acts 7, 1 through 50, He's telling them stuff they already know, and they can't dispute it. Um, They know it perfectly well. Well, when we get to verse um, 51, he leaves it off in verse 49 by telling them that uh, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So he's done preaching now. And uh, they can't dispute. But they're not responding to Jesus being the fulfillment of these prophecies. So what happens in verses 51 through 60 Um, I'll read this part of it. I would love to have heard Stephen say this. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. First gives them this history lesson, and then he gets right in their face. And he says, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. And he's referring to Jesus here. Whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by direction of angels and not kept it. When they heard this, all right, now he's just laid into them. Their response to him rebuking these people, when they heard it, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And I think it was last week, I kind of wondered in my my mind's eye, what does that look like? We just, (laughs) we're actually trying to gnash at somebody. Let's just say they were um, upset to the point where they're going to kill him. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed in heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing. The only time in the scripture where we read that Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father. He's always sitting in every other place. And said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. And they all cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. In other words, they went like this. And they ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. 
that was capital punishment for um, uh, the Jews who was stoning. And the witness, witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who is later going to become Paul. And they stoned Stephen. And he was calling on God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Of course, he learned this from the Lord when he was on the cross, when they crucified him. He said, Father, forgive them. They just have no idea what they're doing. And this morning, we will look at what it took for the believers to obey, and I'm gonna have you turn back down to Acts chapter one, verse eight, because the Lord had given them instruction. And what we're gonna look at this morning is what it took for the believers to obey, Acts chapter one, verse eight, where it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, number one, in all of Judea and Samaria, number two, and number three, to the ends of the earth. And here they're gathered after Stephen has been stoned, and go back to Acts 8 now. And so we find that, uh, let, let me just point out this one verse where it talks about they were cut to the heart, chapter seven and verse 54. In other words, they were convicted in such a way, with such hatred, that it, it cut them to the heart. And if you remember last week, I said there's two kinds of being cut to the heart. This is one of them. A cut to the heart that can be associated with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And some of you are thinking, well, what in the world is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's right here. The gospel is being clearly presented to them. They do not receive it. And they're cut to the heart with hatred. But the other cut to the heart, um, we find back in Acts chapter two, when Peter gets up and preaches for the first time after he's been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I will draw your attention um, to, let's see, I got it in my notes here first, 2 verse 37. He's preaching to these people that are gathered for the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching to them. They're hearing the gospel And then it says, when um, verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Savior. Now when this group of people heard it, they were cut to the heart. Same words. And said to Peter and to the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What's your point, Dwight? There's two different kinds of having your heart cut. And believe me, there's no middle ground. Um, um, The gospel is the gospel. There's no, the Lord doesn't give us any wiggle room for finding another way to salvation. There is no other name under heaven whereby you must be saved. And when you become that dogmatic about it and say, no, things, all things are not relative and When it's over, it's over, or whatever you want to make up to believe. The scriptures doesn't give us that option. It's so precise, it's one or the other. And if you reject it, you're cut to the heart because you don't want to hear it. But if you hear it and you know that you're a sinner, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not one. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And you say, Dwight, that's so narrow. No, I didn't say that. 
The Bible says that. Broad is a gate that leads to destruction, and many be that find it. But straight and narrow is a way that lead to life, and few will be that find it. But there are no other options. I've done two funerals in the last two days, and I went out of my way because whenever you have a funeral, I'd rather do a funeral than a wedding for one reason. Number one, um, at a funeral you've got a captive audience, and a lot of people there aren't saved. And um, it gives me an opportunity um, to say what I just said. There is no other way. And then I tell them, I know how politically uncorrect it is, what I just said, especially in the times that we're living today. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Everything's relative. We want to move towards socialism. From a biblical perspective, we understand that this has to take place. There has to be a one-world government. There has to be a one-world religion. There has to be a one-world currency. All those things are in play right now as I speak. And so it's exciting times in some ways, and, but I'm afraid what's gonna happen is, as a result of it, um, and I'll close with specifics on what's going to happen to the church. And you personally, as a Christian, are gonna have to make some decisions. And you're either gonna have to compromise or you're gonna to have to stand your ground. If you stand your ground, you will be persecuted. And if you compromise, they'll leave you alone. And so, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's look at um, um, Acts, back to Acts chapter eight, and uh, Stephen has now been stoned. We'll pick it up with the first four verses where it tells us now Saul was consenting to his death. He was saying, yeah, let's kill him. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And a devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, well, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging out men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, remember, um, here we see the effects of persecution, what happened. Actually, it did not hinder the church, but it furthered the work of the church. Later on, Paul would give the same kind of testimony after he had been put in prison in Rome. I'm quoting Philippians 1.12 here for taking notes. But I would have you understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me, his persecution, um, having falling out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. In other words, the persecution that he went through actually led towards more revival and people getting saved. Now, if you will go back to, let's look at Acts um, um, one eight again, and I'll be repeating this as we, we're going to see a progression and um, I, w- I was amazed how this actually connected. If you go back to Acts chapter one, verse eight, remember the instructions were, you're gonna get the Holy Spirit and you're gonna have the gospel preached in Jerusalem. Well, did that happen? Yeah, it happened in Acts chapter two. That's what Peter did. 3,000 people got saved. And then he said, you're going to go to um, uh, Samaria and um, and Judah um, and then to the ends of the earth. All right, let's go back to Acts chapter 8, 
picking it up in verse five, up until this time, up until Stephen was killed, everybody's hanging in Jerusalem. Nobody's going out to Samaria, Judea. But we read in verse five uh, through eight, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them And the multitudes with one accord heard the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. Well, now we've gotten out of Jerusalem, but here's my question and my point. What got them out of Jerusalem? Well, it was the stoning of Stephen. And that caused them to branch out. By the way, the next one was James, uh, the brother of John. James and John. Um, So now persecution is rising and Christians are dying. And as a result, they're being moved out and uh, they're going to Judea. And in this case, particularly Samaria. And here's Philip um, um, casting demons out of people, doing miracles, uh, lame or walking, and those who were paralyzed. And the natural result of that, if you had a family member <laughs> who, who uh, could never walk and all of a sudden he's walking, wouldn't that make your day? You know, you'd be full of joy. So the whole town can't believe what, what's taking place Um, then we read in verse 9 and 10 until that time in the city uh, the people were deceived by a sorcerer and his name was Simon Uh, we'll read about him in 9 and 10 it says but there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great. I like to call this guy the big man on campus. He loved the attention. Everybody looked up to him. Uh, He was in the occult. Um, His uh, sorcery was not false or fake. Um, Demons can cause a person to have supernatural strength. Remember the, the demon in the land of the Gadarenes with chains? Snapped him right off. That, that couldn't hold him. Supernatural powers. Janus and Jambri in Egypt during Pharaoh's time. Moses throws down a serpent, turns into a, a throws down his rod and it turns into a serpent. And um, Pharaoh was impressed. Janus, Jambri, come on out here. They had their own staffs. They threw him down, and they turned him into snakes. Of course, Moses' snake ate up the other two, just showing who's in charge here. And, uh, but my point is this. The occult is real. There are, um, it's becoming more and more prevalent and more and more open of, of uh, devil worship, um, witches, and um, it's sort of the trendy thing that's uh, making its way around, and some of these people are finding out they can get real results by placing curses on people or tormenting people, and this, this is what this guy did, and his name was Simon. And verse 10 Uh, The people were astonished that he was someone great to whom they all gave heed. So the whole town looked up to this guy. From the least to the greatest, saying, this man is a great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with sorcery for a long time. So here, uh, there's what we need to realize, my friends, is there's a real war going on for the souls of men, a real war. And as we get closer and closer to it, 
The thing about the enemy, he always shows his cards before he plays them. You ever notice that? He's that arrogant and, and proud that he actually tells you what he's going to do before he does it. And um, it's sort of what his, his um, trademarks and, and, um, and such. But on the other side, of course, you have the gospel being preached. Now, part of the deception is creating a lot of alternatives. The Bible presents one way. There's no other name under heaven by what you must be saved. So what's a good way of causing deception? Well, let's come up with a lot of different religions. How about, um, how about India? How about reincarnation? How about you don't get it right the first time, come back a second time. If you don't get it right the second time, well, come back the third time. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, all the isms. So now you have a variety of deceptions to choose from. And even in the church today, those that are denying the inerrancy of scripture, picking and choosing. And I'm sad to say and ashamed to say that even some Calvary chapels have left off teaching in the Old Testament, saying, well, that's just a little bit too deep for them. They can't understand it. I would beg to differ. Unless you understand the Old Testament, you're not gonna understand the New Testament. We read in Psalm 96 this morning, they gave him gall to drink. And immediately your mind goes, well, no, that's the New Testament. And all of a sudden you go, wow, that's amazing. God is linking the Old Testament with the New Testament through prophecy. What does that create? Faith. How are we saved? By hearing the word of God, we're saved by faith. But you gotta have the whole thing. You can't pick and choose. And that's what a lot of people are doing today. Um, If I was to advertise uh, that the Bible study this morning, last week was gonna be on suffering (laughs) and persecution, oh boy, let's go to church. We're gonna hear about suffering and persecution. No, but it is vital for you to understand it because there's coming a time where you're gonna have to make that choice and make that decision and realize that our our consequences, and I'll talk about those consequences momentarily. Now, in 12 through 25, um, we read, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip, and he was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. He says, man, I can do some things, but this, this guy's out over the top. And when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent for Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, My point here is, this is a whole Bible study within itself. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, period. And that's all it takes to be saved. Um, And then be baptized. That's one baptism. But there's another baptism, and it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the empowering. And so there will be Christians in heaven that never were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They might not have much fruit in their life because they probably just live for themselves. But when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit except one of them is given so that you will use that gift to build up somebody else. One exception, and that is the gift of tongues. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 14, verse four said, the gift of tongues is for self-edification. It's a personal prayer language between you and your maker, but that's the only one. But let's say you really don't have a desire to build up somebody else, use use your gift to build somebody else in our faith. My question would be, then what's the use of having the Holy Spirit? 
if the purpose of the, if you're taking notes, it's 1 Corinthians 14, 12. It says that these gifts are for the building up of the church. And so to exercise them, I'm seeing a falling away from that in the church today too. Um, Verse 16, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, uh, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also that anyone who I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. So, in uh, 18 and 19, I'll just do a little sidetrack before we, um, well, let's go all the way through to, uh, I'm going to stop at 18 and 19 here. So here's the town sorcerer. He wants what they have. So he says, here's a 20. You want to teach me how to do that? And what Peter does as a result, he says, your money's gonna perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion with this matter, for your heart is not in the right sight of God. You want this for yourself, not to build up other people. Repent, therefore, of your wickedness and pray, God, if perhaps the thoughts of your heart may be forgiven you. Well, what were the thoughts of his heart? Well, I'd sort of like to be a big man on campus again. And uh, if I had this, that, that would put me there. Peter says, for I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound in iniquity. And that freaked out. Simon answered and said, oh, please pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of Samaria. So out of Jerusalem, step one. Now Philip is in Samaria, and great signs and wonders are taking place. Allow me to get a little sidetracked here when it comes to the different denominations and churches that are out there. I'm particularly interested in uh, those that hold to the prosperity gospel. Is everybody familiar with the terminology when I say that? I'll give you an example of, uh, of um, um, oh, there's so many of them. Basically, the idea is If you tithe to my organization, then God's going to bless you 100-fold. And um, it's, you know, it's a scam, and anybody can see right through it, but they're telling you that if Jesus was here today, he'd be driving a Cadillac. (laughs) I always laugh at that one, because when I asked him if he had a coin, he he didn't have, he had to ask somebody else for one, because he didn't have one. And... um, Wherever he went, um, he traveled with the poor. He was poor. And he had next to nothing. So Simon wanted to pay for the gift. Well, because this man is a religious racketeer, and he wants to use it for profit. How many such claims are made by individuals today? They claim the great miracle Miracles take place in their meetings and humbly say they have nothing to do with them. I could just stop here and drop Benny Hinn's name and tell you that anybody that goes forward is screened before they go forward. How do I know that? His son blew the whistle on him. And coming out and saying, nobody who's really sick ever gets up on that stage. And um, the ones that are, are pre preconditioned ahead of time and um, um, just all you have to do is google these people's names that are in prosperity just to see how many millions of dollars are their house 
is worth and so on and so forth. That's what we're looking at here. And this is what Peter is rebuking. If that is so, why do they permit this type of deception to go on? Bewitched is the word used here. They have been religious racketeers around bewitching the multitudes from that day till now. Persecution from the outside didn't hurt the church. It scattered the believers and actually worked for the furtherance of the gospel. What hurts the church was that people got on the inside, like the Betty Hens, professing to believe when they were not believers at all, they had a completely different motive. Always the church is hurt from the inside. It was the same with the Lord Jesus. He was betrayed um, from the inside by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. He was betrayed by his own people by, and one of the disciples. His own nation betrayed him to the Roman Empire and the Roman Empire crucified him. Also today, he is betrayed in many a church. Let's look at verse 26, where now we have this revival going on, and but the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and I want you to go down south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, and this is desert. Now, I had these printed out, and I'd like you to take them out at, at the time. The usher should have given you one when you came in. And I want you to, to see, um, it's titled, The Spread of the Gospel. What got them out of their comfort zone? Persecution. So what we read here now is there's a revival taking place in a city in Samaria and they're going around to these other villages. Things are happening there. But an angel of the Lord taps Philip on his shoulder and tells him to go to Gaza. We call it the Gaza Strip today. There's nothing really really there. And um, arise and go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. In other words, there's nothing there. Now, if I'm Philip, I'm saying, Lord, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, the action's here. This is where the action's at. And as far as the last time I was in Gaza, ain't nothing there. Just desert. So what I'm impressed with here is the Lord doesn't tell Philip why he's going to Gaza, but Philip just obeys because the Lord told him to. The Lord's gonna put you in situations like this. I want you to do this. Our first question is, what for? <laughs> we wanna know why. And I'll tell you why when, when you get there. And that's what happens here, verse 27. So he rose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia. Oh my goodness, we've gone from Jerusalem to Samaria. Now we're going to the uttermost parts of the world. But how to get him there? Okay, a eunuch, a man of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, northern Africa, who had charge of all her treasury. I mean, this person had a lot of authority, handled the books, and had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet, and the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake the chariot. Well, he didn't have that bit of information when the Lord told him to go. Only when he got there. Here's this guy coming back from Jerusalem. He left Ethiopia. He goes to Jerusalem to worship, but he's coming back and the best way I could put it is that song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He's a, what I call an honest seeker. And he is searching the scriptures, but he's not getting it. 
And so he's in his chariot, and the lights go on for Philip, and he's thinking, okay, Lord, I see why you're setting me down here. And, and returning, now he's going back home. He's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go in here and overtake the chariot. So Philip ran to him and, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you have any idea what you're reading? <laughs> Honest answer, he's not saved. You see, he's, he went to find God in Jerusalem because that's where he was told God was. I'll get to that in a second. Um, but he says, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip, he says, come on up here and sit with me. And the place in the scripture which he read was, just happened to be Isaiah chapter 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from him? Um, I like this because Philip uses tact what he witnessed to this man. He knows why he's there. He's supposed to lead this guy to the Lord. Well, he didn't come out with guns blazing. Not at all. He came out with a question. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? And that opened him up. When you come out sometimes with gum blazing, it closes people up. Amen? But if you can get them asking questions, like Jesus did um, when he was in Samaria. And, um, oh, this is too good not to go there. Let's, let's go to, just turn over to John chapter 4 real quickly. I'm not, I'm not going to go through it all, but uh, I will make my point here. In John 4, um, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And he left Judea. And he said, we have to go to Samaria. And Samaritans and Jews did not get along. So a little background history lesson here. What's a Samaritan? Well, the Jews despise the Samaritans and the Samaritans despise the Jews. Why? Well, they're half-breeds. When the 10 nations fell to Assyria in 710 BC, all the 10 tribes were taken and the Assyrians moved in and the Israelis moved into Assyria. They interbred. They were half Jewish and half Assyrian. And they became Samaritans. And that's where Samaritans come from. But they didn't hold to the teachings of the Jews. For existence, Noah's Ark landed on Mount Gerizim. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim. And so everything revolves around Mount Gerizim. And they're not supposed to be talking to each other in the first place, so the Lord starts the conversation. Again, tactfulness. He's thirsty. He's at Jacob's well in verse five. And he said, uh, give me a drink of water. And she's, she's saying, what are you talking about? Um, she said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink of, of me, a Samaritan woman? You know we don't have any dealings with each other. What are you talking to me for? And he just tells her, well, you know, if you knew the water that I had to give you, you'd be asking me for the water. It wouldn't be the other way around. For the water that I give, uh, you'll never thirst again. What are you talking about never thirst again? Give me some, give me some of that water. I'll take it. Well, now they're interacting. First she calls him a Jew. The next thing she said, sir. Ooh, we've just gone from being a Jew to a sir. And, and he said, okay, I'll, I'll do that, but first thing I want you to do is I want you to go call your husband. 
Uh Uh-oh, call my husband, huh? Um, I don't have one. And the Lord says, yeah, you're kind of telling the truth. You've been married five times. Uh, You're living with a guy right now. So I guess you could say you're telling me the truth. You don't have a husband. That blew her mind. And now it goes from Jew to Sir to Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet, verse 19. Jesus is going up in status, wouldn't you agree? Is he doing it tactfully, drawing her out? There's a proverb that says, a wise man draws out counsel like a deep well. And Jesus is just being wise, getting her to ask these questions. And finally, and every person here and every person watching live stream has deep questions deep down inside. And they don't often verbalize them or bring them out, but they're there. What was the Lord doing? He was drawing her right out. And when he told her that she was married five times, nobody knew that. Maybe a couple people knew about one or two, but not five. And she all of a sudden spills it. She said, you know, they say that the Messiah is coming. And they say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. But Samaritans say Mount Gerizim is the place to worship. What do you say? And Jesus looked at the woman. He said, neither in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim. For the Lord is seeking those to worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, I go to Calvary Chapel to worship the Lord. I hope not. (laughs) Well, kind of, I hope you do. But no, wherever you are, we're to pray without ceasing. Good place for an amen. We're to walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Not just when you're in a building, but it's your life. And so he explains to her, it's not the place, but it's the position of your heart. Well, how did he get all that out? By being very, very tactful. And um, what I want to point out here as it comes to revival, she goes and tells everybody back in town, hey, you got to go up, you got to go up to the well, Jacob's well. There's a guy up there who told me everything that nobody knew. So they do. They all go up and they listen to him and they all become believers. They go back and tell her, it wasn't because you told us. We went and listened and were persuaded by, by ourselves. But I do want to draw your attention to one particular thing here. Look at verse 35. This is a Bible study on persecution and revival. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they already are white for the harvest. And he who reaps receives wages. This means he who witnesses. What is the harvest? Where, where's he at, by the way? He's in Samaria. And he's telling the disciples, this is a harvest field where you're not supposed to get along with these people. And they both, where you both sow and reap that they may rejoice together. So here's that famous verse of, um, that many missionaries use of going out into the harvest field. What strikes me as interesting is where it was said, in Samaria. And um, then she finally couldn't stand it anymore in verse 25. She says, well, you know, I've heard the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. And then Jesus reads verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You ever hear anybody say, Jesus never said he was God? Well, he sure said it right here. (laughs) And it's I am. The one that you're talking to right now. You're looking at him. How is that for a sidetrack? Let's get back to Acts chapter eight. So, We've gone from Jerusalem to Samaria. Jesus was in Samaria. And now we run into this Ethiopian. 
well, how in the world does this Ethiopian ever know how to go to Jerusalem to find God? The answer to that question can be found in 1 Kings chapter 10. So I'm going to have you turn back to 1 Kings chapter 10. During the reign of Solomon, Solomon is said had made silver like stones. In other words, there's a lot of stones in in Israel, believe me. And he, he made it so wealthy that he made um, silver was, was meant, really meant nothing. Picking it up in verse one. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great um, entourage with camels, boar spices, much gold, precious stones, And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters, and their apparel, their cupbearers, the entryway by which they went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more, we'd say, breath in her. I mean, she was just blown away. And then she said to the king, it was true, the report that I've heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw it with my own eyes. And indeed, only the half has been told. All the stories that I've told, that's only half of it. Um, your wisdom and your prosperity exceed the fame of what I heard. Now, here we have the Queen of Sheba visiting Jerusalem, checking out Solomon. Solomon is told in chapter 11 not to intermarry or multiply wives or horses. Was he obedient with that charge? 700 wives, (laughs) 300 concubines, and horses all over Israel. And he did both. He multiplied wives and he multiplied um, um horses and the last thing we read in 11 the sad thing is in verse 3 he had 700 wives and 300 concubines and and his wives turned away his heart from the Lord and what we have here and the legend which is a lore I can't prove it but I I believe it's true and I'll tell you why um They probably had relations, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Why not? After 700, what's one more? You know? And she was probably all for it. And it could very, very possibly be that um, um, she became pregnant by him. Whatever the case, she went back to Ethiopia with a completely different perspective of the God of Israel and the wonder of it all. Now I'm gonna tell you um, an Ethiopian folklore. When you go and visit Israel today, I think some of the most beautiful people in the world are Ethiopians. They are naturally beautiful people. And they're Jewish. And um, you see them all over Jerusalem and they have their own holidays. But according to Ethiopian folklore, the Ark of the Covenant is in a church in A-K-S-U-M, Akasim, a small city in the northern highlands and is guarded by a single monk. There's people that actually take this very, very seriously. Um, When Chuck Missler was alive, he led tours to this particular building because he actually believed the 
Ark of the Covenant is in that building. And it would have been the reason that this Ethiopian man searching for God, saying, well, this is, this is the God of Israel, but that's in Jerusalem. So that's why he went to Jerusalem, but he leaves not finding the Lord. So here's the good news. How many times have people say, well, yeah, I, find, I finally found Jesus. No, you didn't finally found Jesus. Jesus finally found you. He is the one who goes out and seeks. He's the one who creates the divine appointments that you think is a coincidence? No coincidence. And um, uh, I do believe there's true seekers. Um, I was listening to First Love the other night with Phil Kagey. Um, For those who don't know Phil, he's a first-generation Jesus person. Jimi Hendrix, when people were bragging on him, Jimmy, you're the greatest guitar player in the world. He says, no, I'm not. Phil Kagey is. And he had his, um, his own band. Uh, before he was saved, he was reading the Bible. And I actually saw this two nights ago. He said, before I was saved, I'd stop in the middle of my concert and I'd open up my Bible to Isaiah chapter 53 and read the whole thing. And uh, I thought it was interesting because that's what the guy in the chariot was reading. Of course, Isaiah 53 is all about the Lord Jesus Christ and him bearing our sins. And uh, Phil said the response. You think people would get up and leave because now he's reading the Bible, some crazy Jesus freak. Just the opposite effect. It, it, it caught people. It drew them in. And... and um, Let's go back to Acts. And this is what Philip did with the Ethiopian. He quotes verses uh, mm, 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53 about him being led to the slaughter. In verse 34, this guy from Ethiopia, um, the eunuch answered Philip and said, I, I ask you, whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture and preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, hey, there's some water. What does hinder me from being baptized? Now, obviously, when he was explaining who Jesus was and how to get saved, remember what Peter said in Acts chapter two when they were cut to the heart? What do we do now? Repent and be baptized. So even though it's not said here by Philip to the Ethiopian, he said it. Otherwise, the next verse doesn't make any sense. Hey, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? Obviously, he had to tell them about baptism. So again, it's a choice that is a free will choice that you make. Again, that's why we don't practice infant baptism. It's a decision that you make of your own free will. And it says, and here's the condition um, for you to be saved and for you to be baptized. And that condition is found in verse 37. And Philip said this, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he just lays it right out to him. And he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and baptized him. And when they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Did you get that? <laughs> he was down under water, and Philip's holding him up, and he comes down, and Philip isn't there anymore. He got raptured. Take out your map that you still have. It says Azotus. It's really called, we know it today as Ashdod. 
So from the baptism, um, we find number two, that Philip witnesses in the desert, and then he goes to, um, no, that would be number three, uh, he goes to Azotus, which is Ashdod, and he makes his way up the coast past Joppa, and he eventually is going to end up and passing through. He preached in all the cities, and he came to Caesarea. Caesarea, Paul spent two years in prison in Caesarea, and it has the most beautiful aqua green water. It was um, the crown jewel of the Mediterranean in its day. We still visit it to this day. It has a huge amphitheater. Um, It's where Paul preached to Agrippa. There's so many things that happen in this beautiful place that has um, um, arenas, like horse chariot races like in Ben-Hur. And it was just this most beautiful place. And he said, Philip uh, settles down. So Philip has snatched off the pages of scripture. He is not needed here anymore. The Ethiopian rides off the, the pages of scripture in his chariot, and he went on his way rejoicing. And what about this man? The first great church was not in the United States, nor was it in Europe, nor was it in Jerusalem, nor was it in Asia Meyer. The first great church was in Northern Africa. The Ethiopian eventually, evidently went back, and through his witnessing, his influence, A church was begun there. You would find it very profitable to read the early church in North Africa. And that's why there's so many Ethiopian Jews and Christians um, in Jerusalem today. Now, as we consider this morning's message, we see the gospel was spread as a result of Stephen's death. And James was next. And then the gospel left Jerusalem. Then the gospel went to Samaria. Then the gospel ended up in Ethiopia. And what I'd like to close with is sort of an application of what I believe we're in for. I'm not gonna read all these. I have have many articles that you can do your own research on. I might read a paragraph one. Here's one from California of what's coming down the pike with our new administration. The greatest threat to socialism and um, Biden's um, desires and China's desires happens to be the Church of Jesus Christ. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? We're the obstacle. But unfortunately, many of them have become complacent. And quite frankly, they're not strong enough to stand up for the truth because they're not willing to face persecution. When they gave Peter the alternative, and all the Christians, bow your knee to Caesar or die. There were 70 million, you heard me right, 70 million Christians martyred since Stephen, since the first one. There's a Christian martyred every five minutes. And that is going to intensify, but as I look at the church as a whole today, I don't see it being strong enough because they've gotten away from this book. And they don't give Bible studies on why revival comes from persecution. And, um, you know, the guys that work that rag on you because you're always talking about Jesus, they don't want to hear it. Let me tell you, the most loving thing you can do, no matter how upset somebody might 
get at you. The most loving thing you can do is don't back down. And don't say, yeah, maybe there's other ways. Because if you would tell them that, that would be the most unloving thing you could do. The most loving thing you can do is tell them there really is only one way. And that leads to eternal life. And if you compromise and say, well, uh, maybe there is other ways you could possibly get there. My friends, I'm especially speaking to the men right now, heads of the house. This is where you have to stand strong. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're not going to compromise with this one bit, no matter what. And um, this article here talks about uh, California continuing action against Christians have been shocking. And I'm greatly concerned that it may grow worse before it gets better. Um, California has long been um, battered by the bad public school system, infecting the whole nation from same-sex marriage to um, childhood transgenderism, surgeries, heroin needle, heroin, um, the failure of California's left-wing politics is growing like a, like a cancer. For instance, the Los Angeles mayor has threatened to cut off all power and water of churches as well as any private home that refuses to comply with Governor Gavin Newsom's total ban on all worship. Now, this was in the last couple of months. Another uh, California city has been threatened to seize and destroy a church. There's a whole article. I'm not going to read it. This is about a pastor from Canada. He's jailed over COVID-19 vaccination. Canadian pastor arrested for violating public health orders remains in police custody after refusing um, the condition of his bail that he stood holding services that defied COVID-19 regulations. The case of Grace Life Church, James uh, Coates, has uh, reignited a religious freedom debate over worship gathering during government lockdowns. Uh, The last little one I'll read here, paragraph, it just says the person, uh, you can see how lengthy the article is, Um, the persecution Christian experience is just one month at the hands of the Muslims. And it goes on and documents in Indonesia, in the Congo, uh, Mozambique, um, 50 were slaughtered. Like I said, one every five minutes. That's taking place. Well, the question I'll leave you with this morning is what are we going to do when we get to the next book? After the book of Acts is what? The book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. How many of you are aware of what is in Romans chapter 1? So when we get there, we'll just skip it and go to Romans chapter 2. <laughs> you know we won't. And I'm purposely speaking about it ahead of time. And that's the stand we have to take. It is the most loving thing you can do. First Corinthians 6 9 says, these people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm not just signaling out uh, the... Um, the gay lesbian movement and the sexuality, not just that. In that list, it talks about thieves. Um, In that list, it talks about liars. It says, don't be deceived. These people are not going to heaven. So, and then it says, and such were some of you. Now, homosexuality is in that list. Well, that's a very revealing verse where it says, and such were some of you, but you repented. What? But I was born this way. Oh, no, you weren't. That's a lie. You chose to be that way. Because now that verse just tells me you can change. And that is 
simply by giving your life to Jesus Christ. And um, we can't dance around it or dodge around it because what you're doing by saying anything otherwise, you could actually be sending that person to hell by telling them that lie. But are you going to be loved for it? Nope. They're, they're going to have people that their hearts are going to be cut, but it's going to be cut in a way they were going to want to gnash at you. And so, my friends, let's just tell it like it is. Men need to man up. And uh, wives, support your husbands. Say, honey, can't compromise. Take that attitude as for being in my house. Um, we're going to serve the Lord. And when you get to Romans 1, it's going to be verse by verse. Good place to end? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We know we live in the last days because you said in the last days these things would be happening. They would hate us for taking a stand upon your word. So as we go our way today, uh, we thank you for um, your word. And um, we just pray that uh, as we enter this new beautiful season of spring, we thank you for a beautiful day that um, we know the truth and the truth has set us free. Lord, help us be like Philip. Help us be like Stephen. Um, No matter what the consequences, um, we thank you for the blessed hope and um, we give all this to you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.